down on Kevin Friesen's announcement about his Sunday school class, uh, Your Divine Design. It sounds like an HGTV program, but it's not. Uh, it is a class on spiritual gifts, and, and we're offering it. We're only offering one other class other than the classes that are sort of perpetually going because we want as many people engaged with it as possible. Uh, we want to see people really get in tune with God, how God has shaped them and gifted them so they can be deployed into the different ministries of our church. Uh, not just our program side ministries, but just life-on-life ministries, just caring for people as you get to know them and, and uh, interact with them here in our church. So turn to Mark 14. We're going to be there in just a moment. And I don't know how old a movie has to be to be considered a classic, but if there was ever a modern-day classic, it's The Princess Bride. Many of you have seen it, maybe a few of you haven't. It's a great movie, and I don't care if you're young or old or male or female, it doesn't matter. Everyone enjoys The Princess Bride. And if you've seen the movie, you'll remember the story. You have a princess, Princess Buttercup is her name, and she is kidnapped by a small band of outlaws. Their stated intent is to start a war, and the kidnappers are led by a short Sicilian man named Vizzini who, in my opinion, Vizzini is the most memorable character in the entire movie. And one of the things that makes Vizzini memorable is when he realizes that someone is trailing them, someone is trying to rescue the princess that they've kidnapped, he is in utter disbelief. The strength and the intelligence of this hero, this man in black, is simply unbelievable to him, so unbelievable that repeatedly throughout the first half of the movie, as he sees the hero drawing closer, he shouts inconceivable. He uses the term so much that one of his partners in crime turns to him and says, why do you keep using that word? I do not think it means what you think it means. And anyway, as the story goes, Vizzini would meet his demise in a proclaimed battle of wits in which he would be forced to drink from a cup of poison. And in one of the great scenes of the movie, his last words are to the hero, to the man in black. He says, you fell victim to one of the classic blunders, which is this, Never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. And ha, 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 he laughs, and then he falls over dead. Remember that? And if you're wondering where I'm going with all of that this morning, there, there are actually two ways Vizzini from The Princess Bride intersects with our text this morning. The first is that this scene in Mark 14, to me, is utterly inconceivable. The image of Christ in these verses is un- really unfamiliar to us. He is not bold, he's not assertive, authoritative, or any of the things that we've seen him be in Mark's gospel. Here, Jesus Christ is distressed, he's in agony, he is a utter emotional wreck. If you've read the details of this text, if you really ponder them, our Savior's condition is inconceivable. The task directly before him is beginning to unravel him. The implications and ramifications of bearing the sin of the world, they have Jesus just ruined. And as I study this text, it makes me think of the lyrics to an old hymn. It's a hymn by Catherine Kelly. It's called, Give Me, Give Me a Sight, O Savior. And in it, Kelly asks a question. She writes in the chorus, Oh, help me understand it. Oh, help me take it in what it meant to him, the Holy One, to take away my sin. I love what that hymn acknowledges. It acknowledges that we need help this morning. We need nothing less than divine assistance to take all this in, to really understand 
what it meant for him to bear our sin. More on that in a moment. The second intersection, now let me say, the use of the Princess Bride in this introduction is a very lighthearted way of talking about a very intense passage of Scripture. But the second intersection with that movie is that here we find Christ's commitment to drinking the cup. The holy, righteous cup of God's perfect wrath is in the hand of Jesus, and he is faced with whether to drink or not drink. Death is truly on the line. So as we go to read Mark 14, 32 through 42, I want you to consider what one commentator has rightly said of this passage. He said that there is no passage in Scripture that he shrinks back from handling more than this one. Another said this, that the, this passage records such a holy moment that it must be read in silence and on your knees. This is a very intense group of verses. This is a very intense look into our Savior's heart and mind this morning. So Mark chapter 14, we're actually going to begin reading in verse 27, which is part of the sermon text from a couple of weeks ago, but I want to back up to there. And we're going to read to verse 42. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And Jesus said to them, the disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See? My betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include the details of Christ's time in the Garden of Gethsemane. John does not. And when you read these accounts, you can't help but be confronted with the gravity, the weight of what it meant for Christ to bear our sin. The physical action of dying for our sin takes place at the cross, obviously. But the mental and emotional anguish is found here in the garden. And it's really in the garden 
that we see what it meant to Christ to save the world. So what did it mean? Chiefly, this is what it meant, and I borrow this sentence from Pastor C.J. Mahaney. He says, It meant resolving in that hour of prayer to endure God's wrath for our sin through the experience of human weakness. Here in the garden, we have the absolute best picture of what it meant for Christ to lay aside his glory, his privileges, his prerogatives as God, and become a man, to incarnate, to be born into human form, and to live a life whose culminating mission is his death. That's what we have. Here he contemplates God's wrath, and he resolves to endure God's wrath through the experience of as C.J. Mahaney said, human weakness. So let's see what that experience involved. We'll look at the passage in two large frames, what the cup involved for Christ, so what it meant for him, and then what it means for us. So what the cup involved for Christ. First, it meant relational abandonment. Beginning here in Gethsemane, and then throughout his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, Christ is increasingly abandoned and alone. The advent of this reality is verse 27. When he drops this bombshell on the disciples, he says, you will all fall away. And he roots that claim in the prophetic scriptures, again, Zechariah 13, 7, which says, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, which basically means this. Jesus is telling his closest followers, because of what's about to take place with me, you, my friends, are going to leave me by myself. And you remember from my sermon two weeks ago, the disciples object to this. And they object because falling away from Christ is inconceivable to them. Many of them have followed him now for three years. They've witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle. They've just experienced this incredibly rich moment with Christ in the upper room. He's washed their feet. He led them in the Passover feast. He prayed for them in great detail. There's no way they would fall away. But think about their objection. Think about who they're objecting to. Obviously, they loved Christ, but if they clearly comprehended who he was, why would they question this claim? Was Jesus the type that made a lot of bold claims that never came true? No, he made bold claims that always came true. Their disagreement with Christ is a roundabout statement of unbelief. Peter says he'll never deny Christ, but his protest, his protest of Christ's words is a denial of Christ itself. Christ is making a prophetic claim rooted in Old Testament Scripture, and they're essentially calling into question his ability to inter- uh, interpret the Old Testament Scripture. They come off well-meaning, but their passion is just a substitute for their unbelief. And amidst these passionate responses and rebuttals, the words of Jesus are going to hold true. You will all fall away. You will all fall away. They would fall asleep rather than keeping watch and praying. You will all fall away. Verse 50 tells us that they're going to scatter at his arrest. They'll all fall away. Peter flatly denies knowing Christ three times. Within moments of his claim, they will flee from him. All of the disciples, gone. Jesus was confident of this abandonment because he was keenly aware of what God was up to in these hours before his death. 
What was God up to? Simply put, God was cutting Christ off. He was striking the shepherd. He was cutting him off from his sheep. And even more troubling than that, he was severing their very own relationship. And this is the deeper abandonment that is so key to this text because this abandonment involves the eternally established relationship between Heavenly Father and His Son. Abandonment like this had never occurred in all eternity. And so here, my sermon encounters a problem. The problem is I can't explain this. I'm completely unable to unpack the full meaning of this, not because of time constraints, but because of just inadequacy. It's difficult at best to describe the eternal Trinitarian relationship that is the Godhead, which means there's no possible way I can describe what's involved in the severing of that Trinitarian relationship. Again, it's, it's, it's inconceivable that this father-son relationship, a, a connection so deep and intimate and infinite, a relationship so alive is about to turn dead cold. The sin that abandoned and alienated us from God was about to alienate God's son. Relationally, Christ was about to be alone. He had never in his glorious, eternal, Trinitarian existence been alone. Think about that. Think about the fact that he had repeatedly in his earthly ministry turned to the Lord in prayer. And this would be an action that had always resulted in an outpouring of love and affection and affirmation from the Father. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened there? The affirmation that happened there. The spectacle that happened there. Here in the garden, none of that. Which leads us to the other emotion involved in bearing away our sin. It's distress of the soul. Distress of the soul, as we read in verse 33 and 34, he began, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled, saying, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And it's at this point where this passage gets really, really solemn. And it's here where we realize we're sort of on holy ground. Why this extreme distress of soul? You know, prior to this moment, there is no indication of deep distress. There is no sorrow. Why now? You know, his, his impending death is no surprise to him. He's referred to it throughout his ministry. There's no indication of distress during the Last Supper. He's giving thanks. He's serving his friends. Why the distress now? Well, for Jesus, the cross, which is now just imminent, the cross will bring incomparable and unprecedented suffering. And here in Gethsemane, he begins the downward spiral toward that reality. He's beginning to actually taste what it means to bear the sin of all mankind. One commentator I read this week says that this is the critical moment in Jesus' life. And I believe that's precisely accurate. There are two reasons why I agree with that. One, we see a divergence of will with the Father. And then two, there's this confrontation with the cup. Let's first talk about the cup. Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. I've already alluded to this, but the cup is what's referred to in Isaiah 51 as the cup of God's wrath. 
And what it contains is the full force of God's indignation poured out against sin. And the thing about this cup is that this cup is actually intended for you and me. It's supposed to be ours to drink. Consider Psalm 75.8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he, God, pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth, that's us, all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. The scriptures tell us elsewhere that tasting from this cup causes the drinker to be staggered and crazed. It says this cup is filled with fire and sulfur and scorching wind. So there's no wonder when Jesus stares into this cup, he stumbles. He's facing divine wrath. This wrath, because it's a part of God's character, this is wrath he knows the fullness of. He knows its depth, and it's a wrath he doesn't deserve, but it's a wrath he's resolving to drink in our place. So his prayer is quite understandable. Father, take this cup. You can do anything. All things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. I don't want to drink it, Father. I know what it contains. It's not the physical pain I'm scared of. It's not the crown of thorns or the lashes or the nails. It's bearing your white-hot righteous wrath. This cup causes his distress. The second reason he's distressed, as if the first one wasn't enough, is that for the first time, he's confronted with a divergence of will with his father. Scholar William Lane writes this, he says, Jesus entered the garden to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. This hell was the cup we just referred to, but it was also the prayer he found himself praying, Father, not my will, but yours. Think about that prayer. Jesus' Jesus' attitude was essentially, Father, my will is not to do this. So if this is going to happen, we're going to have to go with your will. And with that sense of deviation, the sense that the Father's will is not quite his own, there's now more distress upon Christ. Now Jesus wants to do his Father's will ultimately. I don't think the redemptive plan was in danger at this point, but I do think we see Christ obeying on the basis of God's character and not necessarily on the basis of his own desire. And that's a rich thought. That should mess with you as you think about it today. But think about it deeply, because the will of the Father here is to cut off His Son. Jesus didn't want to be cut off from the Father. He didn't want His divine Trinitarian relationship severed. He didn't want to be apart from God's love and affection. So this isn't Christ questioning God's will the way sinners question God's will. You know, sinners say, God, I know you don't want me to commit adultery, but I kind of want to commit adultery. His will is not diverging from God in a way that's sinful. It's diverging because of that looming separation. Being relationally cut off from God causes Jesus to say, I don't will that. I don't want that. Yielding to God's will meant separation from God the Father. Jesus couldn't bear the thought. And I don't think anyone considers that a sinful desire. But in this moment, it is one, it is a desire that diverges from the Father's will, which causes distress upon the Lord Jesus. 
And I admit, there is deep mystery here. I'm not sure I can go any further into it than that. The Trinitarian relationship and economy is a complex one at least. Yet I do see tremendous help here for those who struggle with the will of God. Have you ever found yourself saying, God, you're leading this way. I don't want to go this way. It seems you're opening a door here. You want me to walk that way. I I don't have any desire to go that way. Well, here we have Jesus experiencing a similar struggle. But it's just as the book of Hebrews tells us. It confirms for us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. But it's distress he's feeling. Distress that's flowing from the cup of God's wrath. Tension because of his divergent will with the Father. But then there's a third factor. This is not in your notes, but I'll add it. It's the factor of human sin. Sin is overwhelming Christ's sensibilities. Just as an out-of-tune voice or an out-of-tune piano is unbearable to a trained ear, so Christ would be with the, the existence of sin. For pure and perfect holiness to take on the sin of the world, for it actually to be imputed to him, the thought ruins Jesus. Therefore, he says, his distress is to the point of death. The wages of sin is death. And here the thought of taking the sin upon himself, it's killing him. For Jesus knows fully what's in the heart of man. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in my heart. He can hardly bear the thought of it being imputed to him. It's inconceivable. So what it meant to him, it meant never-before-experienced relational abandonment. Have you ever been alone? You've never been this alone. It meant deep distress of the soul. Have you ever been distressed? You've never been this distressed. It meant the imputation of all human sin upon him. Whoa. John Calvin says, It is our wisdom to have a fit sense of how much our salvation costs the Son of God. I think this passage helps us get a glimpse. It helps us. What, therefore, can we take from it? What can we apply? What maybe can we be assured of this morning? Well, I think for him to drink the cup, you can be sure, assured that he loves you in his darkest hour. We see in verse 36, Jesus reminding God that he, God, is capable of anything. Look, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you, God. All things except removing the one thing staring Jesus in the face, which is the cross. The fact that Christ went through with the crucifixion proves that God is not capable of something. He's not capable of saving sinners apart from his justice. A just judge does not just blink at a crime. He does not turn a blind eye to those who break the law. If he did, he would not be just. 
Criminals must be punished. Lawbreakers must be condemned. Is God not a just judge? Yes, he is. Therefore, sin has to be justly dealt with. Enter Christ. Enter the Son. Christ is allowing God to remain true to who he is, holy, righteous, and just, while at the same time saving who we are, holy and unsin- holy and unholy and sinful people, I should say. And in light of that, therefore, we should stand here and just behold our sin, our pride, our selfishness, our lust, our greed, our idolatry, all of it. We should just behold what it has done. Our sin is such that it necessitates the suffering of God the Son to save us. That's what it requires. You know, we weep at the unjust suffering in, the, in our world, which it, is, which, it, which it is great. We weep at the unjust suffering in our world. Yet no one has caused more unjust suffering than we have. For we caused the perfect, holy, innocent Christ to suffer. Our sin did that to Him. He was innocent. We were not. What kind of God does this? What kind of God takes this action? What kind of God goes to these lengths? It's a God that loves. A God that sacrifices Himself to save those He loves. You cannot accompany Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane and emerge unaffected by his love. You just can't. For his love is what drives him to Gethsemane and then out of Gethsemane to the cross and he, and, and he gets there for the sake of you, for your salvation, for your right standing with God, for your eternity to be in heaven. You know the old hymn. By Charles Gabriel, it says, For me it was in the garden. He prayed, Not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Only love can supply the kind of obedience we see in Christ here. Only love. Consider this from Jonathan Edwards. He's America's greatest theologian. He's never brief. He's sort of a mess with sentence structure, but listen to this. He said, after Christ had the cup in view, he finally resolved that he would bear it rather than those poor sinners whom he had loved from all eternity. When the dreadful cup was before him, he did not say within himself, why should I? Why should I go plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for worthless, wretched worms that cannot be profitable to God or me, that that deserve to be hated by me and not be loved? Why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go to cast myself into such a furnace for them that can never requite me for it? Why should I yield myself to be thus crushed by the weight of divine wrath for them who have no love to me and are my enemies? What shall I be the richer for having saved a number of miserable haters of God and me who deserve to have divine justice glorified in their destruction? 
Such, however, was not the language of Christ's heart. But on the contrary, his love held out. And he resolved even then in the midst of his agony to yield himself up to the will of God and to take the cup and to drink it. That's Edwards. In his darkest hour, he loves us. Second assurance we can take is that he cares for you in his darkest hour. He loves you. He cares for you. Dark hours of temptation and suffering, those are inevitable for each of us. All we have to do is live long enough, and we're going to face them. But as I said, because of Jesus' condition here, we're given proof that he was, in fact, tempted in every way that we are or can be. It was Edwards, again, who said that Jesus' principal errand in the world was to drink the cup, which is to say his principal errand was to suffer And these moments in the garden, this hour of suffering far exceeds any lifetime of human suffering. He cares for you in his darkest hour. He cares for your darkest hour while he is in his darkest hour, for his hour is darkest of all. You know, when we've been through something hard or some kind of suffering that's just terrible, what ministers most to us? Someone who's been through the same thing, right? A person we can identify with and say, wow, you made it too. Man, isn't chemo horrible? Didn't rehab seem impossible? Man, you're tempted to relapse as well? You know, we live in some pretty dark moments, and we need to know that other people have lived in those moments and somehow made it out the other side. Well, Jesus has walked through the darkest of moments. He's the sympathizer. He ministers to us because no moment is as dark as the one he's currently in. Because of his darkest hour, he cares for you in your darkest hour. Third point of application. This again, not in your notes. I added this later. He provides counsel in the most turbulent of situations. Jesus counsels Peter, James, and John to watch and pray. And his counsel to them is proceeding from his example, which is always the best kind of counsel. He enters the Gethsemane. He's amazingly troubled. By his own admission, he's at the point of death. But when he leaves Gethsemane, he appears troubled no more. In fact, Jesus is resolute. At the close of this passage, he is walking into the teeth of his betrayer. He's saying, all right, let's go. The hour has come. It's time. So, Peter, James, and John, were they brought along to comfort Jesus, as some commentators or Bible scholars might say? No. They would be of no comfort to Jesus. These guys, they've just had three glasses of wine with the Passover feast. They just had a big meal. It's late. Jesus knows they're going to fall asleep. He knows they would eventually scatter, that they're going to deny him boldly. So why has he brought them along? He's brought them along to counsel them. And what's his counsel? Watch and pray. Not watch and pray for him. Not be lookouts. Watch and pray for themselves. So what's remarkable in this scene is Jesus' care for his disciples. In the midst of indescribable agony, twice he returns to them 
to warn them of temptation and testing. And in doing that, he encourages them to watch and to pray. They're on his mind. Jesus, in his final moments with them, is trying to train and disciple them. The sin of the world is about to crash on his shoulders, and he's pouring in to them. Because you know what's ahead of them? Testing and trial and suffering. And so he's saying, watch and pray. There's a posture you have to take, guys. It's, it's being watchful and being prayerful. And you know what? We, all of us in this room, are to differing degrees experiencing testing and trial and suffering. And the way that we know that we can be prepared to endure it, and not necessarily make it easier, but endure it, is to be watchful, to be prayerful, to not neglect those two things. So here we have Jesus resolving in this hour of prayer. He's resolving to endure God's wrath for our sin through the experience of human weakness. And what we learn through his time of prayer is that our weakness is our security, not our strength. Let me say that again so you'll catch it. Our weakness is our security, not our strength. Strength is what prayer provides, but deep, earnest prayers are not born out of strength, are they? No, they're born out of weakness. They're born out of need. They're born out of desperation. Strength is what prayer provides, but deep, earnest prayers are not born out of strength. They're born out of weakness. How weak are you? Are you weak enough to pray earnest prayers that make you strong? This is what Gethsemane teaches. That's why Jesus walked out with strength and the disciples walked out feeble, ready to run because they failed to watch and pray. As a summary to this scene, Bible scholar Daniel Aiken, he's the dean at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, he says, Gethsemane was hell for Jesus but I'm so thankful he went through it. You see, if there is no Gethsemane, then there is no Calvary. If there is no Calvary, there can be no empty tomb. And if there is no empty tomb, there can only be hell for us. You see the importance of what's happening here? The pain of the cross is what lies ahead for us in our study. But the point of the cross connects with Gethsemane. If you don't know Christ, if you're trying to scratch the surface of what this really means for him to go to the cross for us, for him to resolve to drink a cup of God's wrath, a cup of wrath that you and I should drink because of our own sin, sin that he took upon himself, you need to drill down further and get clear on what it means to put your faith in him. You need to talk to me or talk to a friend or talk to somebody because you you don't want to be subjected to it. You want to cling to Jesus. You want his obedience to be your obedience. And you want to know that no matter what suffering and pain and trial you go through, he's been been deeper still, and you have a rock to cling to. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. And um, we confess together that this is a passage with tremendous weight. And even confusing as we think about your nature as Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, diverging wills, 
separation. It's all here, God. We, we scarcely can wrap our minds around it. So God, just bring illumination to our hearts and minds as we, as we think on this text further. But God, also encourage us through it. Help us to be a watchful people and a prayerful people. People that are not lax or lazy or blind or apathetic, but people that stand ready to not just serve you, but endure suffering because it's going to come. God, again, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you through putting their trust in Christ, I pray that they would do that today, that they would understand that they're not entering into a religion where they now have to perform but they would recognize that Jesus Christ performed for them, and they simply trust in his saving life and his saving death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.